No culture, no government has a right to dismiss the law of God. It's God's law. And a government that goes away from God's law only goes away from God's law because the church hasn't been preaching God's law. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, I'm delighted this morning to finally get back to the Gospel of Mark. So take your Bibles and turn with me back to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 7. And uh, this morning we want to begin a study on the topic, really, of legalism. I've entitled the message this morning, Clean Hands, Dirty Hearts. And I want you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, Mark chapter 7. And I want to begin reading in verse 1. I'll read through verse 13, although we will not get through all of these verses this morning. Let us hear God's word. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands and he said to them well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me in vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men and he said to them You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. You may be seated and let us ask for the Lord's help this morning. Our Father, this is a penetrating passage, Lord, which gets to the heart of legalism and what is the result of legalism, which is a life of hypocrisy. And in it, Lord, it is hard not to be convicted of our own sin, our own shortcomings. And Father, it is also difficult just in reading it not to be drawn to Christ and to be drawn to the grace that comes to us through the gospel. So Lord, we pray that as we study this topic of legalism, 
this topic of what it means to have clean hands but a dirty heart. Lord, that we might be drawn to Christ, that we might fling ourselves upon the mercy and the grace of Christ, finding salvation in his name and in his name alone. Not in our works, not in our righteousness, but only in Christ Jesus. We pray thus that Christ would be magnified and exalted in our hearts and in this church, in this community, in this society, in this nation. For your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It is clear that as one studies the Bible, that God's knowledge of who we really are is something that Scripture emphasizes over and over again. One of the most quoted verses in the Bible is God's words to the prophet Samuel from 1 Samuel chapter 16 where it says that God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And it was... David, when it was time for him to pass the kingdom on to his son Solomon, who remembered these words in 1 Samuel 16 and said to his son, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. 1 Chronicles 28 verse 9. That is to say that God knows us intimately. In fact, God knows you so intimately this morning that he has numbered the very hairs upon your head. The psalmist says that the only type of true worship that God accepts because he can see in our hearts is worship that comes from a pure heart. Psalm 24, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. The Bible says he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And it seems that that very verse, that very passage, was in the mind and heart of our Lord when he spoke to the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, and he said that God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The topic of legalism was a topic that was an overwhelmingly favorite topic for Jesus to preach on. Jesus understood that legalism manufactures the product of faulty worship, from the factory of a corrupt soul, an unclean soul, an unrighteous soul. At the heart of true worship, and a true worshiper, and thus a true believer, is what is defined in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. You're familiar with it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Outward love of God means nothing, according to Scripture, apart from an inward love for God. Religious observance means nothing apart from heart devotion. Lip service to God means nothing apart from life service to Him. And it's not as if God doesn't care about our external commitment. God cares. But the point of Scripture is that one cannot substitute external commitment in the place of internal commitment to God. And in Jesus' day, it was Jewish tradition that had paved the way 
for legalistic living, the result of which was self-righteousness and essentially a highway that led straight to hell. When confronted by Jesus, the religious leaders wouldn't hear his words because they didn't have any ear to hear God's words because their tradition had muddled and blurred the true word of the living God. They were deaf to God's truth because their ears were trained only for their master, which was the traditions of the elders. The love of tradition over scripture was the very basis for prompting the scribes and Pharisees to challenge Jesus in this very passage before us this morning, before ultimately rejecting his argument against their established legalism. This wasn't the first time. You remember in Mark chapter 3, they accused Jesus of having an unclean spirit, that is, of having a demon. Well, in this passage, Jesus turns the tables and says that they have unclean hearts, unclean souls, unclean spirits. They were the ones whose hearts were a den of demons. No true worship, no true salvation. And it was ultimately this issue over Scripture and tradition that led to Jesus' crucifixion. He constantly challenged the motives of the religious leaders, while on the other hand, warmly embracing the crowds who sat under the preaching and teaching of these false shepherds, these false elders, these false shepherds of Israel. In his own sermons, for example, the true shepherd, that is Jesus, used extremely strong language calling the clergy of his day vipers and serpents in Matthew chapter 12, false shepherds in John chapter 10, which he borrowed from Ezekiel chapter 34, and even hypocrites in Matthew chapter 23. He did this while, on the other hand, warmly embracing those in the crowds. People also like the Samaritan woman, the diseased, the lame, the lepers, the woman with an issue of blood, and even those possessed with demons. Because all of these sorts of people, collectively and generally speaking, had faith. It may have been simple faith, it may have been weak faith, but it was real faith, and Jesus had compassion on them, as Mark 6 says, verse 34, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, because they sat under false and abusive shepherds. No wonder they had weak faith. They were spiritually malnourished. Because instead of these shepherds of Israel, these scribes and Pharisees, leading them beside streams of pure water and nourishing them on the green pastures of sacred scriptures, these false shepherds were poisoning the waters with legalism and force-feeding people the traditions of man. And so Jesus would reserve the strongest of language against the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders. In fact, Jesus told them in Matthew chapter 23 that they essentially barred the doors of the kingdom shut instead of opening them, that they were literally the ushers of hell. They did not give the keys of the kingdom, which were the saving words of God. He aggressively told them also in Matthew 23 that they were blind to the truth. He chided them for majoring on the minors and ignoring the majors because they tithe their tiny little spices. 
And they avoided love and mercy and justice. He accused them of having clean hands but dirty hearts in Matthew chapter 23. And in that same passage, he rebuked them for being just like their fathers who treated the prophets with dishonor and violence because they spoke a word of God and the scribes and Pharisees didn't want to hear it. They were obsessed with their own traditions. The people of God in the Old Testament, as you study it, seem to have been hell-bent toward legalism, just as many people today in Christianity are and other religions of the world. There is a reason for this. When you go back and study the book of Genesis, you find that God made a covenant of works with Adam. Ever since Adam failed to keep that covenant with God and he ate of the fruit in the garden, man has tried various versions of works righteousness. Adam himself even did this right after he committed the first sin. Before God killed an animal and clothed him and his wife Eve with the skins, Adam used fig leaves to try and cover his shame. And to make himself acceptable with God. This was the first attempt at legalism. Covering up his shame and his guilt was essentially trying to cover up his sin. And so God said, no, Adam, I'm going to clothe you with animal skins from an animal that I will kill. And I will pronounce the curse of sin as a sign that the blood of this animal will point toward Christ who will come to save you from sin. Because God must give his righteousness to us. Man cannot manufacture his own righteousness. And yet man instinctively tries to live up to the standard of God. He tries to live up to the perfection of God. To earn God's merit. To earn God's favor. And it never works. People of the Old Testament, that is Israel, constantly fell into the trap of thinking they could save themselves. And it was because of this false worship, this works-oriented righteousness and hypocrisy that led them into Babylonian captivity. And here's where things took a turn for the worst instead of the better. Oral traditions began to be something they were obsessed with. Oral traditions, extra-biblical rules passed down generation to generation, which served as um, a fence around the law of God. These rules and regulations began to grow dominant in the lives of God's people. And here was the idea. The idea was to protect God's law through a series of rules that prevented God's people from coming close to violating the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai. So upon returning from Babylonian exile, it was the scribes, beginning with Ezra, who copied the scriptures, and then eventually these interpretations of the law of God were published. And as One century passed by another, it became hard for God's people to then delineate the difference between what was Scripture and what was tradition. What teachings were simply interpretations of what man thought the way God's law should be applied and which was really the actual words of God himself. And so in Mark chapter 7, Jesus confronts the religious leaders for this legacy of legalism that had dominated God's people. After all, Psalm 19 does not say that the traditions of the elders is perfect, reviving the soul. 
The tradition of the elders is sure, making wise the simple. The tradition of the elders is right, rejoicing the heart. The tradition of the elders is pure, enlightening the eyes. The traditions of the elders is clean, enduring forever. The tradition of the elders is true and righteous altogether. Oh no, the Bible says the law of the Lord is those things. The word of God is those things, perfect and sure and right and clean and true. And so this entire passage, Mark 7 verses 1 through 13, is Jesus defending Scripture, therefore Jesus defending the Gospel. And I want you to understand this morning that your understanding of this passage is a matter of life and death. It is a matter of heaven and hell. It is a matter of getting the Gospel right or getting it wrong. It is a matter of honoring Scripture or devaluing Scripture and thus stripping God of all of His grace and all of His glory. You fall into the traditions of man and you will fall into hell. You must look to Christ and you must look to the specific words of Christ in this passage to avoid any semblance of works righteousness in your life. Your very soul depends upon your understanding of this passage. Jesus repudiated legalism. Jesus condemned and rebuked anyone that would even give any sort of sign that you could do anything to merit favor with God. He points to the damning and destruction of legalism. Legalism is man-centered. Scripture is God-centered. Legalism produces pride. Scripture produces humility. Legalism produces self-righteousness. Scripture produces the righteousness of Christ. Legalism causes judgmentalism and division. Scripture prompts mercy and grace and unity and love. It's impossible to honor God apart from honoring His Word. And it's impossible to live a selfless life when one is entrenched in legalism where you judge others by your standard. Legalism is trying to obey God's law to seek His approval, to seek His merit, to seek His favor, particularly His salvation. And while we're talking about legalism, I might as well mention legalism's stepbrother, which is antinomianism. That's another heresy. Antinomianism is a heresy that repudiates the law of God and obeying the law of God. Both of these are heresies. One of them ignores grace and emphasizes law. The other perverts grace and de-emphasizes the law. One says that obedience is all that matters, thus nullifying grace. The other says obedience doesn't matter at all, thus perverting grace. Both present different symptoms. But they have the same root problem. It's a focus on self, not a focus on Christ. One lives an overly rigid, strict life that inevitably results in hypocrisy. The other lives an overly loose life that inevitably results in hypocrisy. Legalism reveals itself in a judgmental spirit, a self-righteous attitude, whereas antinomianism is an apathetic, impure, sometimes even sensuous and boldly sinful attitude and lifestyle that repudiates the law of God. Both are rooted in the same theological and spiritual disease, which is an unhealthy focus on self. Legalism on how self obeys God to earn his special favor and antinomianism on how self can live any way he wants to live. Both miss Christ, both focus on self, both are obsessively man-centered, not God-centered. But in this passage... Jesus addresses legalism. Jesus will not allow the religious leaders to avoid him. 
They confront him, he confronts them right back. He stands in their way, refusing to back down from their intimidation tactics and calls them out for their life-destroying, soul-damning legalism. And as I said, we do well to take heed and to take warning this morning. Man's default mode is legalism. We are hardwired to believe we can do something to earn God's favor, earn God's merit, and look better than other Christians around us. And that is self-righteous legalism that Jesus Christ himself hates with a holy vengeance. The standard is perfection. But newsflash, you ain't perfect. And neither am I. Christ is the only answer who obeyed every law in the place of his people and then died as a substitute upon the cross. We aren't to look to the law for our salvation. We are to look to Christ. We aren't to look to what we can do or what we have done, but to what Christ has done for us upon the cross. And even this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, this is an important reminder to us because there have been periods throughout the church church history in which Christians have fallen into the heresy of legalism and it has caused generational damage where one generation after another believes the lie that you can do something to merit God's favor whether it is baptism whether it is church membership or any other number of spiritual disciplines and ordinances of Christ so let's look at Mark chapter 7 or begin looking at it here this morning I've already said that Jesus has another confrontation with the religious establishment. And as they confront him, he confronts them back and he exposes their legalism. The confrontation itself contains six gripping moments. I want you to notice with me, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, simply what we'll call the petty delegation. The petty delegation. Mark opens up by telling us, that the Pharisees gathered to him, that is to Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. Now this is a a petty delegation sent from the headquarters of Jerusalem, which was located some 90 miles south of Capernaum. Mark tells us here in verse 1 that it was composed of Pharisees and some of the scribes. Now the Pharisees were a sect of strict Jews. The scribes were a profession of Jews. Not all Pharisees were therefore scribes, but many of the scribes were also Pharisees. And so what you need to understand apparently from verse 1 what Mark wants us to understand is that some of the Pharisees in Galilee where Jesus is residing had sent word to the Sanhedrin to the Pharisees that worked by the temple in Jerusalem and they basically sent for a religious commission of high-ranking, respected elites in Jerusalem. They called for these Pharisees and these scribes. The scribes were law experts. Sometimes that word is translated as lawyers in the Bible. They were those who studied the law of God. They interpreted the law of God. They taught the law of God. And they were also tasked with passing down the oral traditions regarding the application of the law from one generation to the next. They were highly respected, highly reputed to be the, the spiritual and theological elites of the day. They were the respected rabbis. 
that had all of the answers to all of the questions. And Pharisees and scribes go together because Pharisees sought to be the purest of sects of Judaism in applying the teachings of the scribes. And so the Pharisees loved to hang out with the scribes. They were the experts on the scriptures. In every conceivable way, I want you to understand before we move further, that Jesus was the polar opposite of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus was adorned with meekness, they with pridefulness. Jesus with sincerity, they with hypocrisy. Jesus was self-effacing, they were self-serving. Jesus was full of sympathy, they were full of cruelty. As we'll see when we come to the end of this passage, they didn't even care for their own flesh and blood, their mothers and their fathers. The scribes were there in an evil attempt to trap Jesus with their argumentation as specialists in the traditions. So this petty delegation wanted to quibble with Jesus on the areas that they deemed his life didn't match up to the strict following of the traditions. This was, make no mistake about it, a fact-finding commission of the upper echelon of Jerusalem's elite religious leaders. And let me just say, like most committees, they were overconfident and incompetent. They were ill-prepared and they were publicly Embarrassed. One commentator calls them theological hitmen sent to nail Jesus. And by the way, that is the first mark of a legalist. You want to know a legalist when you see him? Legalists are headhunters of others, policing strict adherence to personal standards of preference instead of focusing on the definition of true holiness set down in the scriptures. Calvin would refer to the law of God and he would say the law of God has three uses. The third use of the law was to say that the law of God is a measuring stick of true holiness, but not the traditions of man, not the preferences of man. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, Calvin would say, but do not try to police what I do on that day. For example, Well, these are the types of people that have gathered around Jesus. And I want you to notice that phrase when it says there in verse 1 that they gathered to him. It can actually be translated that they gathered around him. This This is like a gang of spiritual elites surrounding Jesus so he cannot escape. And while most Jews would have been humiliated to be confronted for not living up to extra biblical regulations, Jesus welcomed the challenge because he knew Scripture better than they did. He was a right interpreter of God's law. Scripture was on his side, not their side. This was a religious delegation akin to a conspiratorial church committee seeking grounds to undermine Jesus' ministry and excommunicating from the community. We could say that the elders are trying to get rid of the true shepherd of Israel because he constantly exposed them for their legalism and hypocrisy. This is retaliation. They're hot on his heels. They want to destroy his reputation. This is nothing short of characteristics. So notice verse 2. It tells us the reason this petty delegation surrounded him. It says that they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is, 
unwashed. That gave them a reason in their minds to quibble with Jesus regarding their petty standards regarding cleanliness. Remember earlier they attacked Jesus regarding Sabbath regulations. He allowed his disciples to eat grain on the Sabbath, chapter 2. Earlier, or later in chapter 2, they uh, accused Jesus of breaking the traditions of the elders because he didn't fast. Here was an accusation of ritual impurity. Ritual impurity. The Old Testament prescribed ritual purity, but when it came to ceremonial washings, for example, you can read in Leviticus 22, 6 and 7, Exodus 30, verse 19, Exodus 40, verse 13. It was the priests who were required to cleanse themselves before entering the temple, cleansing their hands and their feet, according to Exodus 30, verse 19. The only other requirement for other Israelites regarding cleanliness was that if they touched a dead body, Leviticus 15, verse 11, says that they needed to take a bath to cleanse themselves. But the scribes and Pharisees were obsessed with symbolic washings. This is not a a concern of physical sanitation, but one of religious tradition. What makes one look good? What makes one look pure and clean? They were obsessed with what they looked like before the world. And Jesus is going to tell them, you are clean on the outside, but you're dirty on the inside. You have clean hands, but your hearts are filthy. And this now takes us to the second gripping moment. Following the appearance of the petty delegation, we move number two to verses three and four, what we'll call the parenthetical explanation. Notice verse three. Mark here gives an aside. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Mark has to give this explanation because he's writing to a largely Gentile audience. And apart from understanding the Jewish practice regarding washings, it's hard for us, because we're Gentiles too, or at least most of us are, from understanding what the big deal was. So Mark says in verse 3 that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. That phrase translated properly, literally in the Greek, means unless they wash their hands with a fist. Now there is a section in the Jewish Mishnah uh, entitled Yadame, which literally means hands. And it offers no clarification of what it means to wash with a fist. Some commentators propose it means that you are to wash up to your fist. Or others that you're to rub uh, a closed fist in the palm of the other hand, scrubbing. Or that you're to pour water over a clenched fist. Or that you are to use handfuls or fistfuls of water to cleanse yourself. But what you need to understand is the issue here is not hygiene, but ritual purification. And so Mark says, they did this because the end of verse 3, they were holding to the tradition of the elders. This is not a medical issue. 
This was a spiritual issue according to the tradition of the elders, not according to the word of God, because the word of God only required priests to cleanse themselves thoroughly before entering the temple. And so verse 4 says, And furthermore, when they come from the marketplace, oh boy, they do not eat unless they wash. There are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Since the marketplace was a natural gathering place for all types of people, Gentiles, Samaritans, it was especially viewed as religiously defiling. That's Mark's point here. Because what if you brushed up against a Gentile in the market? And the tradition of the elders said you need to go home and wash. Now there is a different word that is used here in verse 4 for wash. Um, It is not the word that is used in verse 3 to describe washing with a fist. It's a different word, and there's a couple of variant readings. One variant reading has pantizo, which means to sprinkle, and another reading has baptismos, which means to immerse. I think that baptismos is probably the better reading, but I don't think that that means that most Jews literally immersed their bodies in water. You have an incident that occurred um, a few go over with me to Luke chapter 11 um, where they confront Jesus on this and verse 37 of Luke 11 says that while Jesus was speaking a Pharisee asked him to dine with him so he went in and reclined at table and the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner Uh, that's the same Greek word that's used here in Mark baptismos I don't think that they thought Jesus needed to bathe before dinner. So verse 4 is not describing another type of washing, namely an immersion. And we know that it's not speaking about a a bath or immersion because notice in verse 5, the question is, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders but eat with defiled hands? The issue is not a defiled body. The issue is defiled hands. But be that as it may, there was a growing tradition where baptism by immersion or scrubbing of the body by Jesus' day became to be somewhat normal. And so it's at least possible that's what they're referring to here because the rest of verse 4 says there were many other traditions that they observed such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. They would baptize cups, pots, copper vessels, and even beds by pouring fistfuls of water over them or by using some other vessel to pour water over them. Some 186 pages of the Mishnah was devoted to rules regarding cleanliness. They were obsessed with baptism. They were obsessed with baptizing everything, hands, feet, Utensils, pitchers, beds, bodies. Their method of baptizing their hands was by pouring. Alfred Edersheim describes the ceremonial washings as likely involving three steps. Number one, they would pour water from a jar onto both hands with the fingers pointing up so the water would run off their wrists. Then they would pour water again over their hands, this time with their fingers pointing down for the water to run off the tips. And then they would rub each hand with the fist and scrub to become ceremonially clean, especially 
after they came from the marketplace, after they had run-ins, potential run-ins with other Gentiles. Now Mark gives this parenthetical explanation because apart from that, you can't understand what the big deal was. Here's the big deal. A whole line of tradition had made the Scriptures say what the Scriptures never really said and calls people to do what the Scriptures never required them to do. And people believed it. And people thought that this is what made them acceptable before God. It was this fastidious standard of Jewish practice that led to the religious leaders questioning Jesus, as we see in verse 5. So we move, number one, from the petty delegation, number two, to to the parenthetical explanation, now number three, verse 5, the pathetic interrogation. Notice, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, he's already surrounded, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now notice that question. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? They are not arguing chapter and verse here. Their argument is based on the authority of man. That's how far they had gone. They're playing the part of a a spiritual doctor, diagnosing the disease. What was the symptom? Well, the symptom was Jesus and the disciples ate with defiled hands. All right. Here's the symptom. You eat with dirty hands. But the disease was the fact that they did not walk according to the tradition of the elders. They didn't base this pathetic interrogation on a violation of chapter and verse, but a violation of the tradition of the elders. Now what exactly was the tradition of the elders? Well, I mentioned to you before that when the Jews returned back from Babylonian captivity, uh, they began to institute the office of scribe, beginning with Ezra, who would copy the scriptures down and copy different interpretations of those scriptures, which were then placed next to the text of scripture itself. And so what happened is, is that when scribes were copying scripture, they inevitably would muddle together the interpretations of the scribes with the text of scripture itself. Eventually, all this being published in the Mishnah in the 2nd or 3rd century A.D. The Mishnah had a companion volume, uh, the Gemara or Gemara, which was a rabbinical commentary. And these two volumes, the Mishnah and the Gemara, made up the Talmud, which uh, is essentially a collection of Jewish tradition encompassing literally thousands of pages. Now, this is what the Talmud taught in summary form. I don't want you to have to go read all this stuff, so let me just tell you what the Talmud taught. The Talmud taught that God gave to Moses an oral law when he was on Mount Sinai. Moses, of course, took the tablets of stone down and the Ten Commandments, the Ten Principles, but most of what God gave was an oral tradition that had to then be passed down to other spiritual men of Israel. These men were commissioned with a charge to follow the law in their lives in addition to training others to teach the law and to pass it down generationally. The idea being that they wanted to build a wall of protection around the actual law of God. The Mishnah actually states 
that Jewish tradition was, and I quote, a fence around God's law, end quote. That's what it was. A wall of protection of extra biblical rules and regulations to prevent people from even coming close to violating the law of God. But what seemed like a good idea turned into the tragic result of obscuring the pure law of God because it confused the pure law of God with the extra-biblical fence laws. The focus became the fence, and the law was lost behind the fence, behind the wall. And what this resulted in was external conformity to man's traditions rather than to the spirit of the law itself. Now, there are many examples that I could go to in the Old Testament of how strongly God's vengeance was toward this. But I'll just take you to one. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 66. Here in Isaiah chapter 66, God rebukes Israel. And he rebukes them because of their corrupt worship. Verse 1 of Isaiah 66, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things come to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Verse 3, but here's how it is among you. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. He's saying that their worship was mindless, heartless, ruthless. Their sacrifices were like the pagans, like heartless murder of victims presented before God with no inward spirit of humility and love and devotion to God. They were just guilty of killing a bunch of animals and sacrificing them with a heart far away from God. And when the Jews returned to their homeland after their Babylonian captivity and they formed this scribal tradition, it didn't take long, generation after generation, before you had a theological crisis on your hands because most of God's people believed that the way to heaven and the way to merit favor with God was through works, righteousness, and obedience to the law of God. And Jesus is left with that. Jesus is born into that theological context, into that tradition of the perversion of God's word. By Jesus' time, the commentary on Scripture, the rabbinical commentary, supplanted Scripture itself, and God's word was lost. Jesus, Jesus was like a spiritual archaeologist uncovering the true word buried under the rubble of man's traditions. And so the religious leaders hated him for that. Let me give you some examples from the Mishnah. In an effort to protect Sabbath observance, they placed a fence around the fourth commandment. Here's what they said. 
you can look in the mirror on the Sabbath because in so doing, you cannot look into a mirror on the Sabbath because in so doing, you might see a gray hair, be tempted to pluck it out, which is considered working too hard on the Sabbath. You're supposed to be resting. Example number two. Rabbis debate whether a man with a wooden leg could carry his leg out of the house if his house caught on fire on the Sabbath. Would this be too much labor on the Sabbath? Example number three. If one spits on the Sabbath, it was fine, but you must be careful because if your spittle lands on the dirt and you accidentally scuff it with your sandal, then you could be guilty of cultivating the soil on the Sabbath and thus farming. And as ridiculous as that was regarding the Sabbath, someone has calculated that 25% of the Mishnah, one-fourth of the Mishnah, had to do with ritual cleanliness laws. The very type that the religious leaders are confronting Jesus about in this passage. R. Kent Hughes, the famous commentator, says, and I quote, During Jesus' day, the scriptural rituals of purity were so fenced and refenced that the concept of true inner purity had been trivialized to a system of external washings. Thus, the inevitable earth-shaking collision was set with Jesus, the preacher of true righteousness. And in this text, Jesus set the scribes and Pharisees straight about the nature of real purity and its source. He taught the need for radical purity that could only be supplied by his own life, end quote. And that's the point to see. Your only means of salvation this morning is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one who was perfectly obedient to God's law. Does God require perfection to his law? Absolutely he does, but the only one who can do that is Christ and he did it for his people. These religious leaders were devotees of hollow religion instead of substantial spirituality, fleshly righteousness instead of Christ's, outward conformity apart from inward commitment to God. I just want to say something this morning about what I think in our own day people often go to when they speak about legalism. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And I want to set the record straight regarding the Sermon on the Mount. This is an important thing to point out. There are many in the evangelical world today who use the word legalism and by that they're using it as an excuse to dismiss the law of God. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he confronts the religious leaders. Notice with me in Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. All right, let's just stop right there. Jesus did not come to overturn the law of God. Are we clear? Let me be clear. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, Not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says that he loves the law so much that you can't even relax one of the least of these commandments. If you do so, you'll be called least in the kingdom of God because the law of God is important to the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God has a king and that king is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He didn't come to overturn the law. He didn't come to abrogate the law. He didn't come to nullify the law of God. He came to establish it, confirm it, preach it, fulfill it. And he even says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Why does he say that? Because their righteousness wasn't based on the law. It was based on tradition. Your righteousness is based on the law in two ways. Number one, Christ obeyed the law perfectly for you and you're given the righteousness of Christ. But your sanctification is also based upon the righteous degree by which you obey the law of God. That is the standard for the Christian, the law of God. The law of God in the new covenant is not removed. It's not law in the Old Testament, grace in the New Testament. Mean bad God in the Old Testament, gracious loving God in the New Testament. No, it's the same God. Jesus came, he was full of grace and truth. He was full of law and gospel. And he preached the law because without preaching the law, you can't see your own sin if you don't have a standard to compare it to. And he preached the grace of God to say, I've come to obey this law for you. There's another interesting thing here in the Sermon on the Mount. Notice this phrase over and over and over again. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said. Verse 31, it was also said. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said. Over and over and over again, you have heard that it's been said. Notice Jesus does not say it is written. To say it is written is to say thus saith the Lord, this is what the Bible says. What Jesus is confronting in the Sermon on the Mount is the tradition of the scribes and Pharisees. For you have heard what they have said. And they have focused on one part of the law. Jesus goes to the heart of it. They focused on the external. Jesus says the law of God has to do with the internal as well. Jesus says, for example, verse 27, you have heard that it was said, we could say, by the tradition of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not commit adultery. Well, that's easy. It's the seventh commandment. Don't commit adultery. But Jesus says, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. How in the world did their traditions miss the fact that inward lust was equivalent to adultery? Jesus says this is always the way that it was from the very beginning. How do we know that? Because even in the Ten Commandments, God says, thou shalt not covet. Which clearly includes coveting after someone's wife. So let me be clear, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not overturning the law of God. He is establishing it, and he is giving a right interpretation of it in conflict with the false, bad tradition of the scribes and Pharisees. R.C. Sproul says, and I quote, Never in the New Testament do we find the Lord Jesus Christ criticizing or disobeying the written law of God. But it seems as if every day, everywhere he went, he violated the oral tradition. And that is so true. That's how we must be, beloved. We stand on the authority of God's word. And we're willing to throw away any tradition that conflicts with God's word. Tradition is not bad. But traditionalism is bad. Traditionalism leads to legalism. 
And the idea that if you don't conform to certain standards that are man-made, then maybe you're not a Christian. That sort of attitude is alive and well in the church today, and there should be no place for it. Jesus didn't want any place for it among Israel. Jesus is not against God's law. How could he be against God's law? He's God's son. He's the truth of God incarnate. He's opposing the traditions of man. Let me just say this. We live in an age of cheap grace. We live in an age of antinomianism. We live in an age of immorality and loose living. We live in an age where the church doesn't preach enough about the law of God. The law of God is not the issue. It's when you take the law of God and say that it's faith plus obedience to the law equals salvation. That is what is unbiblical. Today, no one wants to talk about Mosaic Law. Church doesn't talk about Mosaic Law. Politicians poo-poo Judeo-Christian values. They welcome loose living. They welcome lawlessness. No culture, no government has a right to dismiss the law of God. It's God's law. And a government that goes away from God's law, only goes away from God's law because the church hasn't been preaching God's law. And the people in the pew aren't living according to God's law, God's standards. God's law, Romans 1 says, has been written on every man's heart. But today, there is an attempt to replace God's authority with man's authority. It happened in Jesus' day, and you want to know where it's happening today? It's happening today in the governments of the world who have become the pharisaical legalists of the day, promoting their own standards of righteousness, their own standards of good and bad, good and evil, dismissing God's law, dismissing Mosaic law, atheistic, secularistic, promoting homosexuality, abortion, immorality of all kinds, and then they want to over-regulate your life and my life as if they're some great spiritual pious people. It's regulation madness, and that always occurs when a group of people want to control another group of people, and while controlling that group of people, they themselves don't want to be controlled by God. Antinomianism in the church has led to legalism in the state. Because someone has to police the chaos and the immorality. The only problem is the state is completely unqualified because they don't operate from Mosaic law. Their sort of policing and policies remove freedom, bind consciences, control others. It's a power grab. The church today needs to preach the law of God. Preaching the law of God to true believers who understand that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Understand that it's not obedience to the law that saves them, but it is their obedience to the law that makes them more sanctified and makes them salt and light in a world, in a culture, in a society that needs to be preserved from its decadence and immorality. God's judgment on any nation is the result of his particular judgment on the church for not preaching and teaching the standards of God. So let me be clear about that. Jesus is not repudiating God's law. He's fighting against the legalism 
of his day with the Pharisees. Pharisees would talk about the importance of a law. They'd then write a hypothetical policy of that law, and then they would elevate that policy or precedent in published form. That's exactly what happens in societies and religious circles all the time. And when it does, it binds the consciences of souls and supplants the true law of God. Let me just say this. To add to the law of God is to subtract from it. To add to God's word, extra biblical restrictions doesn't add to God's authority. It removes God's authority and worse, it replaces God's authority. Christian pietism has done this beginning with many in what we call the Anabaptist movement. It's resulted in strict living such as that which we see with the Amish on one extreme, independent fundamentalism on the other extreme. Whether it's a a restriction that says uh, you have to travel in a horse and a buggy or or one that says women can't wear pants, these are extra-biblical man-made regulations that subtract from God's law remove his authority, strip him of his glory. Legalism majors on the minors and often minors on the majors. It's really idolatry because it places on the heart man instead of God. Man instead of God. Jesus fights against this pathetic interrogation by the religious leaders, not because because he wants freed from God's law, As a second Adam, as I said, he perfectly obeyed God's law. He's fighting against them in an effort to uphold the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture and the sovereignty of God. And before we're too harsh with the Pharisees, we need to challenge our own hearts. What regulations do we place on ourselves or others that aren't scriptural? Is it an overly scrupulous view of what one can and cannot do on the Sabbath? What one can or cannot do with regard to entertainment? Perhaps it's policing the musical tastes of others, the way that you educate your children. It could be any number of things. But Christians must learn to derive their authority for what they do from Scripture and Scripture alone. And for his part, It's exactly what Jesus does. Because now he turns the discussion where the discussion should have began and that's to the scriptures. The pointed quotation, notice verse six, and he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me and vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus goes straight to the scriptures. The petty delegation, the parenthetical explanation, the pathetic interrogation now leads to the pointed quotation from scripture. Jesus has a chapter and a verse to confront their legalism and to put God back on the throne. I just want to say this, beloved. These issues are critical to understand because throughout church history, the battle has always been either over legalism or antinomianism. There are either those who say you need to obey the law of God in order to be a Christian, legalists, which then involves the traditions of man, or there are those who say 
They're antinomian. They're against law. Law doesn't matter. Both are heresies. Jesus in this passage upholds the law of God because he quotes the word of God as the standard. The standard of what God expects of his people, which will involve external commitment. But he pierces into their souls and says the issue is that you can't be externally committed the right way because your hearts are corrupt. There is no inward purity. There's only hypocrisy. And next week we will discover the depth of that hypocrisy as we look at the rest of this passage together. May God grant us his grace to look to Christ this morning and the mercy and salvation that is found in his name alone, not in anything that we do. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for the courage and the conviction of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. How could we expect anything different than a bold stance on your word? He is the word incarnate. Lord, we, we thank you for the clarity of Scripture regarding salvation being free. Free to us, not free to Christ, but free to us. And Lord, we pray that as we continue to study these issues of hypocrisy and legalism, that you would free our hearts, free our homes, free this church from those sorts of self-righteous attitudes that can be destructive, that can pervert and malign the true gospel, that can give, on the one hand, people a false sense of assurance because of what they do, or for others can make them feel that they're unworthy even though they're a true child of God. Lord, these matters must be walked through carefully. We must uphold your law on the one hand, but never uphold your law as equal with the gospel because it's Christ alone who saves. So Lord, would you seal these truths to our hearts even now as we turn to partake of this Holy Supper. We pray that as your spirit is attending to our hearts during this sacrament, Lord, that we might be strengthened with the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, and the mercy of Christ. We pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church History, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.